she looked for cases where men were denied equal protection under the law and used those in order to further the cause that equal protection under the law actually includes women. Was RBG the first Proud Boy ever? <laughs> everybody welcome to another episode i'm your host and moderator anthony strain and today i'm joined by art black how's it going dylan captavilla hey mateo de gaulle popping my peas like a master and this is crowdsource politics today we are going to talk about ruth bader ginsburg her influence as both a lawyer and a judge some of the important cases that she had discussed as well as what are the political ramifications of her death and who will be the most likely to replace her without further ado let's go ahead and start the show so I think one of the first things that we should talk about with regards to Ruth Ginsburg is the amount of influence she had on the court prior to becoming a judge with some of her actions uh, in regards to expanding what it is, what is considered and was should have been considered the entire time uh, women's rights within the United States. What was kind of her her lawyer philosophy in that regard? Does anybody want to go ahead and take that up now? Equality, really. She just, there were laws on the books that were just blatantly discriminatory and she wanted to do away with them. She started the, what they call it, the Women's Project in the ACLU? That's correct. Yeah, like that was just, you know, bringing suits forward or something, just doing legal work toward that end. Cause I mean, we probably still have some now. I'm not going to say it's like all gone now, but back then it was, it was notable. It was blatant rather than being more subtle like it is today. Pretty sure she wasn't allowed to wear pants. That's true. This was the discrimination of yesteryear versus current year. One of the things I think it's important to mention, and it's not something that is necessarily harped on by scholars or legal analysts with her, is that she was very much kind of an incrementalist in her approach to law. She thought that exploiting a wedge issue or exploiting a, not necessarily a wedge issue, but exploiting a weakness within the law or the opinion and getting that little bit at a time going forward, just getting a little more and a little more and a little more, you have a more robust legal opinion and it will change society over time in a way that's more long lasting rather than these sweeping, rather than these sweeping changes that happen all at once. Uh, so that was one of the most important things from her as a, as a philosophy that I think is not mentioned much. Was that an explicit opinion of hers or was that, or was that a matter of practicality um, as in uh, making as much change as she reasonably could given the power that she had? I would probably say it's both, but she had explicitly mentioned it during one of her confirmation hearings. I wanted to say it was during her confirmation hearing to be a judge at first before being a uh, being appointed to the Supreme Court where she had explicitly mentioned that that is the proper approach. So one of the other things I think we should talk about is a couple of her cases. Mateo, you brought up a couple of cases when we we're talking about this offline. Um. Well, you know where I'm going to go. I'm going to go with uh, DCV Heller and I am. Not happy with where she would have, where she fell on that. Maybe before then, what what was one of her earlier cases? Let's talk about some of the cases that she uh, helped adjudicate rather than judge. Yeah, so uh, one of her first major cases was uh, United States v. Virginia. And that was regarding uh, Virginia Military Institute. Uh, and that was a case uh, she heard as a Supreme Court justice, and she wrote the majority opinion. Um, the VMI, Virginia Military Institute, had a male-only admission policy. Uh, so Supreme Court struck that down. Uh, and it was a seven-to-one decision. So it was 
almost unanimous. Justice Scalia was the only one who <laughs> who dissented. Uh, and that was one of the first major cases in Ginsburg's career as a Supreme Court of Justice. Yeah, that I know a tiny bit about. I know like basically that school, it's it was such a weird thing to argue against because that school was like a fast track into high society. And if you're excluding women, like whether it's explicitly or effectively, that's what it did. And it's just such a weird thing to argue against. I guess maybe back then it was more palatable. Go ahead. Uh, Scalia's dissent in that was uh, basically that uh, uh, he, he really just wrote a nice little note about how, tr- you know, uh, this school had a certain tradition and the tradition was for a good purpose at the time and it no longer served its purpose as, you know, society evolves and all that. So even his, it was interesting because even his dissent on that was almost like a, uh, I'm only writing a dissent here just so people remember that they weren't bad people and that I actually agree with Ginsburg and everybody else in their argument, but just that we should reflect on like the path that took us from where we were to where we are now and all that. It was really just basically so that it wasn't unanimous. Oh, that's an interesting point. I didn't know that fact about that case. I think Scalia is kind of, he does that a lot. I think that's what he was sort of famous for, like just getting his name out there. Even if he's like agrees with them, he'll have his own like affirming. Separate concurring opinion. Yeah, it's. So here's an interesting little tidbit. Uh, So the Supreme Court ruled it, uh, they struck it down based on the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Mm -hmm. Clause. Uh, So Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of her first cases as a... uh, District judge. Uh, so when she was on the Tenth Circuit, one of her cases was Moritz v. Commissioner, and that was that was kind of one of the cases that put her on. The map. Uh, this was before she was a judge. Oh, that was before she was a judge. Yes, this is one of the cases that she litigated. Well, never mind. No, it's it's an important. I was, I was going to make a point. Anyway, oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, sorry, I I got her role in that mixed up. Um, but you're right. Anyway, she she uh, argued it. Bas- she made basically the same argument in that case as she made. Um, for for the majority opinion in United States versus Virginia, uh, which is using the uh, the equal protection clause, made essentially the same arguments in that one. This is just to go to show you that her legal philosophy when it came to equal rights has been very very consistent, as it should be for everybody. Let's not you know mm-hmm. some words about this, but one of the the things with that particular case is that she looked for cases where men were denied equal protection under law and used those in order to further a cause that equal protection under law actually includes women. Was RBG the first proud boy ever? <laughs> <laughs> She's a pioneer. Wow. Yeah, that's a great joke. That is actually kind of true uh, in in that kind of roundabout way. But it's it's more funny than true. Yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I mean. It's like it's it's one of those situations where in that kind of roundabout way that it's like, oh, yeah, that's kind of. Yeah. But um, anyways, in, in that in this particular case that Dylan mentioned is that the point of issue here was that a, a man had uh, his wife had died. And so he chose to be a stay at home ch- uh, stay at home father to his young child between, I think, the years of like infant, you know, basically birth to like about three years old or so and under the law at that time um social security would give widow benefits but not widower benefits it was considered a mother benefit and the law denied him the ability to take care of his child and get get those benefits where it would not deny it to a woman that's good that's not a bad place to step in right and it's like i said though it's one of those situations where you know benevolent sexism is a thing it's still sexism right so i think that's something that should be mentioned Oh, yeah. All, all the like well-meaning prejudice and bigotry is way under the radar. 
So I, that's really good that she did that. <laughs> Not even just for practicality, also just to like highlight what she was going after, like to make it relatable to other people that made up most of the government. So she had to find a way to relate to them somehow. No, for sure. And she had to take these cases like this because well, at the time it was all men on the, on the judiciary and you know, they had a certain worldview based on the time frames in which they lived. So exposing these issues to light in a way, in that sort of way, greatly furthered the cause for women's rights. Um, one of the other things that she had argued with or argued for, uh, at least as an amicus brief, was in Frontiero versus Richardson, um, where in this particular instance, the United States Air Force uh, would give men a larger living allowance for their wives than wives would get for their husbands. And she argued basically in the same kind of vein where it was denying this equal protection, this equal right to both sexes that uh, made it harder for women and men to actually serve in the capacity, at least in the military. So in this regard, the the equal protection was not afforded. And at the military at the time, there was not all these great benefits that there are today. And that living stipend for a dependent was very important to maintaining some semblance of a moderately middle-class lifestyle and having that denied to women to help take care of their their household would greatly impact their ability to to function and probably in some instances cause people to have to take two second or third jobs and that case was uh ruled in her favor eight to one what was the name of that case again frontenero versus richardson did she have a big influence over the other justices or were they all kind of on the same in the same boat and going to vote eight to one. I'm just curious, like what the hearings went like. I'm not entirely sure. I know that this was an amicus brief, so she did not uh, argue the case directly. So uh, do you, what was the year of that case? This was 1973. Okay. Uh, so the, uh, the previous case, Morris v. Commissioner, that was 1968. So it's, it's really interesting because you can see like over the course of her career where she uh, as a litigator, she was establishing these precedents, winning cases, and then 30 years later as a justice was relying on that same precedent to establish arguments uh, in other cases. Very much true. I have to issue a correction on the last case that I mentioned um, with the Mortis versus Commissioner. I was actually talking about Weinberger versus Winsfield. They were very similar cases, but the widower was in Weinberg versus Winsfield, not, uh, not Mortis versus Commissioner. God, we haven't even finished the episode if we're already issuing apologies. <laughs> well, I think that's important to make the distinction there for those particular cases. This is one of those situations where we can go ahead and start talking about more of her legal opinions on the Supreme Court. So what or well, let's before we get to talk about her legal opinions on the Supreme Court, let's talk about her nomination process. How did that go? I don't know. I wasn't around for it. <laughs> I, I think it went pretty well. I, I think it's one of those situations where it draws a stark contrast between what is going on now and what happened back then. When she was nominated to the Supreme Court by Bill Clinton in 1993, she had been approved by the Senate in a vote of, I want to say, 96 to 3. It might have been 93 to 6, but along those lines. And while I want to say it was Orrin Hatch greatly disagreed with her on a judicial, her philosophy as a, as a as an ideology. He had no qualms with actually approving her because she was a great justice. 
and a uh, great legal mind. And he had said that, no, when you lose an election, that is what that's how the bones lie. And so we have to respect the process and basically appoint you because there's no reason that we can't. Well, a reason would be they don't want them to be on the court. Right. But I'm saying like, okay, she got approved 93, 96 to three or whatever. Right. So mm. they at the time, their opinion was that unless there's something egregious here, then we shouldn't be saying no due to, you know, ideological differences. It should have to be something no saying no to based on some sort of egregious analysis of the of law. Well, that's certainly one point of view, but I don't think it's any more important than any other. I think Anthony's point is that that was the dominant point of view in the year 1993 when she was nominated compared to today where that's not the point of view that's held by senators at all. <laughs> and I don't think that's the point of view held by held by the public. To invite protesters in is now the point of view. I mean, I don't think Republicans are the ones going apeshit and bringing protesters into the hearings so, and badgering the, the speaker at these hearings. So what changed? That is a great question, and I think it's something that we could talk about a little bit later. But uh, I would say probably one of the biggest things that changed was uh, the Tea Party, to be honest. I'm not blaming Republicans for this. I'm saying that the Tea Party energized a certain subsect of... Well, they did a, yeah, they did a lot of damage. Yeah. That's absolutely true. So that would be my opinion on this. Art, you've been pretty mum. Do you want to add any points to this? Well, I mean, I was thinking back to like earlier Supreme Court battles, and uh, the, the youngest one that I can remember was Robert Bork, uh, which is because I'm uh, of elevated and advanced age. <laughs> Bork is a good one, though. That's that's famous. No, absolutely. And, Art is our favorite Gen Xer. <laughs> you know, so the thing with uh, Bork was that that was probably the first, you know, really deeply bitter, uh, kind of a partisan. I don't know quite how to put it because it wasn't quite an ambush. Bork was a lot more far right than uh, I think was normal at the time. And Reagan was basically trying to slip him in near the end. Wait, was it Reagan or was that George Walker Bush? It was Reagan. It was either at the end of Reagan or the beginning of GHWB. But Biden actually was leading the Judiciary Committee and, you know, pretty much took him out. And I don't remember exactly why, but um, also somehow brought in Anita Hill, but then didn't, you know, for whatever reason, you need to help people. And like a lot of the left is really upset with Biden for taking out Bork, but doing so in a way that didn't give Anita Hill credence or, you know, again, this is lost in the haze of time. But basically that, you know, that was abnormal. Normally, the whole Supreme Court nomination thing was a very bipartisan kind of a, a just a normal procedure of government back when we had a functioning government. And Ginsburg was much the same. Like it was a bit of an interesting thing that she was nominated. There was a minor bit of you know, note of uh, kind of bringing her in and, you know, it was unusual to have, you know, female Supreme Court justices and, and all that. But, you know, nothing like now, like, uh, you know, what you'd see these days is, you know, basically like a, some kind of, you know, drunken knife fight in a dockside bar. Literally bringing protesters in. There's no way those oh, yeah. people can get in without being invited by a senator. Like, they, they're literally throwing rotten food on the stage and saying, think about the institutions and the process. Oh. It was not, I mean... The Ginsburg thing was nothing like that. I wouldn't be surprised if that was Kennedy. It was Kennedy, actually. Kennedy, I think, said uh, we have to destroy him, right? Or wait, which Kennedy are you talking about? Yeah, we're talking about the senator, Ted. I think he's quoted by, I think maybe Grassley quoted him. So who knows? He might be completely wrong. But uh, basically, like, Kennedy said something to the effect, like, we have to ruin him or take him out or something. Like, basically, this has nothing to do with what kind of judge he is. We're just going to just harp on his life. And I think even um, his closing remarks, uh, Bork, 
basically they said, why do you want to be a Supreme Court justice? And everyone, it's like a softball. It's like a, a toss up. Like, you know, you just knock it out of the park. He's like, cause I love the right. constitution and the flag and this and that. But he's like, I think it would be an intellectual feast. And everyone just was like, oh, oh, intellectual <laughs> feast, this evil. Like, it's, it's so crazy how these people, like, I'm always talking about how politics is like a cult. And this is a perfect example of that. I think it made headlines. It was just like, it's just awkward wording. And it's, I mean, I think it's actually cool to talk like that, but it's just <laughs> nothing to freak out about. Like, I think there's some some issues along with his uh, legal opinions and his ideology that are worse. That was part of it. But I'm just saying they really, they highlighted certain things. It was just weird. But I think that would make another good episode talking about Bork and how that had a great impact on the judicial process in general. Everybody likes to say that Republicans generally throw the first stone, but I think in this instance, Bork actually was one of the uh, drivers to the dissolution of uh, Democratic, not Democratic norms, but uh, senatorial norms in that regard. Art, did you want to finish your point? Yeah, basically that that was just uh, out of the ordinary. And then it more or less reverted back to normal after that, where you would have judges who would get through and, you know, without much fanfare. Um, you know, even later on, like, uh, I think George Bush tried to nominate Harriet Myers, who, you know, even before she got nominated, even the GOP was like, what, what are you doing? Like, you know, so there are some instances where you did see some pushback where people would you know, make decisions. It was just outside of what the bipartisan consensus was going to tolerate. Bork was one. Myers was one. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody else. And really until we got into like the Trump era where just like everything just goes nuclear right away. Like there's no there's no getting around it. For sure. Even with Obama, there was a slight amount of controversy with, you know, his picks. But, you know, nobody that was really seriously held up. I mean, it was just kind of a, you know, there was some grandstanding. And uh, then we were just kind of on our way. Yep. I'm still amazed McConnell didn't get Garland in there. That was such a stupid risk. Like it paid out, obviously, but it's like that's like taking your savings and going to Atlantic City. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just paid out. And like now they're like, this strategic genius. Like other things he's done, sure, you can give him credit for, but this was totally just shot in the dark. 100% risk. Garland was like a gift to the Republicans. It was. That a, a Democrat giving you Garland, like don't get me wrong, Garland's not like a righty, but he's for Republicans to take that from Obama, that's like, no brainer, especially when you think Hillary's going to win. You have to really think back then it was really hard to imagine Trump winning. My only thing about that one that I can think of is that Republicans had internal polling that no one else had that showed Trump would eke out a win in some of the uh, swing states. That is my guess on that regard. Go ahead, Art. I was just going to say also when he made that play, like that was before they thought Trump was going to be the nominee. Okay, very good point. Uh, we should probably get into some of her um, judicial opinions, whether or not she had uh, wrote a majority opinion or some of her famous dissents. So, uh, Mateo, tell us about uh, DC versus Heller and um, pro partly of what Ginsburg's opinion was on that and why you take issue with it, please. Well, she just clearly doesn't think uh, the right to bear arms is an individual right, which means any locale can effectively ban them all. Like like the thing that everyone says, no, 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 I'm, I'm not for banning them all. That ruling, if it went the other way, it would have said, yeah, but if your city wants to, yeah, they can. Even if it's in some way, like they'll give, they'll let you apply for a permit, but they'll just never give you a permit. Some people get permits, but big coincidence, they're all tied into the government anyway. It's all like fucking cronies anyway. So she just flat out thinks it's a, a collective right and not an individual one. And actually, I don't like the ruling or I don't like where she would have gone with it. At the same time, it helps me a lot because people will praise the other side of uh, DCV Heller just because obviously, you know, if I'm a liberal, I'm not going to support 
the other side, or I, I don't know. I don't know why they actually say it because they, these are the same people who will swear up and down that they still think you have a right to at least a shotgun, at least a, a bolt action rifle for hunting. But if Heller actually went the other way around, it's up to your locale. It's up to your government, your state government, even. I think that's a fair point with with that one. I mean, the the originalist argument would say that it applied to muskets and uh, and and cannon. <laughs> that's true. The assault weapons of their time. Let's get back into the uh, talking about some of her uh, opinions from the court as her, her time during a Supreme Court justice. We already talked about her uh, majority opinion striking down Virginia Military Institute's ban on allowing women into the into VMI. I think one of the other important cases that we should talk about, which is one of her first famous dissents on the court, was Ledbetter versus Goodyear. So in Ledbetter versus Goodyear, Lily Ledbetter was working for Goodyear. And she had filled a position previously previously where a man had filled it, and she was being paid less, uh, like about 5% or so. More than that, actually. I think it was like 20% or so of uh, what the man was making. And the statute as written basically had said that um, she had waited too long to actually bring forth her uh, argument against it in her uh, lawsuit. Because in order for it to be the the basically uh, Ginsburg's opinion was that she had to wait as long as she did, because you're not going to notice that disparity in pay until it's racked up a bit and, or until you find out. And there was a three year limit or something like that on, on it. And Yeah, the statute of limitations, according to the Supreme Court ruling that she dissented from, uh, started at the date of the paycheck instead of when the woman found out about <laughs> about her the discrepancy in pay so if she didn't find out about it until years later then according to that supreme court ruling in which uh ginsburg dissented you know if if a woman didn't find out about a discrepancy in pay compared to her male colleagues you know longer than three years later she wouldn't be able to do anything about it right and uh the law was actually changed based on her dissenting opinion on this so the the issue was rectified the following year as Congress took over, as the Democrats took over in the House and Senate after the 20, 2008 election. Um, they tried to be rectified one previous time, but it found opposition within the, the Senate for that. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I don't know why they'd even go the other way on that. It, it was one of those issues. This is, we can talk about originalism here in a minute, but this is one of those issues where the law as written actually stated this. Well, yeah, then you change the law. Right. And that's what ended up happening. Well, I think that was a, a kind of a famous dissent because in her dissent, she asked Congress to make the change to the law. Yeah. She didn't just say, no, this isn't legal. She said, Congress, please do something about this, basically. For sure. Which is an unusual move for a justice to do. I th- I like that, though. I think that's a really good idea. I think more justices should be able to say, like, my hands are fucking tied. Congress, do something. Like, that's really what like they shouldn't be there to be like, oh, let me let me see what I could do here. Let me see what I could work up with my words. No, they should be like Congress. You fucked it up. Fix it, and then I I, I could rule on it reasonably. Uh, there was several cases in which uh, Ginsburg joined the majority opinion on overturning anti-abortion laws. So in uh, Whole Women's Health versus Hellestead, a case was struck down parts of a 2013 Texas law regulating abortion providers. Her opinion on that was that the law is one of those situations where the law is saying it's trying to do one thing, but it's in fact trying to actually restrict abortion in total rather than protect women's health. 
And then there was a, another case where she famously dissented, which was the court case where the Voting Rights Act was essentially overturned. And she had listed that the majority's opinion on that case was wrong, primarily due to the fact that it was the voting rights that was preventing the issues from coming back. And so you're ba she basically said, oh, we don't have these issues because of the law, so let's get rid of the law. And they, she disagreed with Roberts' opinion on that because of that. Is there any other cases somebody else would like to jump in with before we move on to political ramifications and talking about her appoint her successor? I think she has really interesting opinions on uh, Roe v. Wade. Like uh, people would just assume that she would be for it, and I mean, she of course she doesn't think it should be done away with, but her criticism of it, which is my criticism too, it should be everyone's, is it's basically a decision that protects the privacy of doctors to perform abortions more than the woman. It's like more just in a roundabout way the woman is protected because of the doctor's privacy. And while sure, that definitely fixed a problem, a big societal problem we were going through, it did a lot of good. At the same time, it's just, it's, it's just sloppy. And I think it's pretty good to hear her say something like that about it because you should be critical about things that even you support. I think with her, her dissent or her uh, opinion on that is, is shaped by the fact that it wholesale created a right rather than incrementally did. And it's become a wedge issue because of that. I would say that's probably one of her opinions on that. Yeah, that's definitely also it. So I think we've talked a good amount of, about her cases and some of her history. This isn't an extensive episode about just Ginsburg. It's about also the political ramifications of her death and who her replacement is. So her replacement is going to be who, Dylan? It's going to be Amy Coney Barrett. And with Amy Coney Barrett, what is the primary issues that we think are people are going to have with her? and what, Or rather stated, uh, what is the primary reason that she is being picked by Trump to replace Ginsburg? Okay. Uh, well, she is being picked by Trump because she is kind of, politically, she's far to the right. She is religious, kind of hardline conservative. So here's the neat thing about Amy Coney Barrett is that she's, I think she's relatively new to, to her current position. She was appointed by Trump to the federal bench uh, shortly after uh, taking office. Seventh Circuit, yeah. Right. So she's she's young. Uh, okay, she's forty eight years old. So uh, that's obviously if you're on this, uh, if you're appointing a judge, that's something you're a, a justice. That's something you're looking for. If you've watched videos of her speak, she's intelligent, and by all means, if we're in the year nineteen ninety three, she is she's qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. I was actually going to say the same thing. I watched some of her speaking and like you, you could tell when someone's just like really smart and she's like it. Uh, she clearly knows what she's talking about. Uh, she clearly thinks through her arguments before making them. The opposition to her would be political. It would absolutely be political because of her positions on uh, primarily uh, gender issues and abortion issues at the moment. I think people trying to kind of put her through a Almost, uh, I want to say this because it's going to sound like some cliche talking points from right wingers. Back during her hearing for the Seventh Circuit, um, what was it? Uh, Feinstein kind of brought up religion, and so people were looking at it as almost like a religious test. I mean, obviously, it wasn't an official religious test, but just that type of thinking, like it's it's a little weird. Like that's a weird point to bring up, especially in a hearing like that. I Feinstein knows better than that. She's a pro. Yeah, I think the primary issue with that is that uh, people do not necessarily believe that she will put the secular nature of the United States above her ideolo religious ideological leanings. And that is partly why it was brought up, because the groups that she is a part of and some of her opinions that she has stated 
uh, in various publications, uh, Catholic publications and otherwise, have stated basically that one should always go with God uh, in their in their decisions. And if you can't... Is that the building a kingdom of God quote? Probably. I don't know the direct quote. There's a lot of like artistic interpretation with that. It's kind of... It could mean a lot of things. And I'm pretty sure it's just some hollow congratulations for graduating speech more than any type of, oh, you got to control them. The Catholics have to take over. I think it's just mild, boring shit. With her, it is not as clear cut and dry and obvious as it is with Will, with Barr, with Bill Barr. Okay, yeah, that's that's definitely fair. So with Bill Barr, we did an episode on this. Please check it out. It's uh, blessed, based to be Bill Barr. Um, we go out one over his dominionist leanings and his uh, Catholic ideology. And uh, it, with him, it's a much more obvious where he lies on that. With Amy, it's not as clear cut. I think it's a fair criticism and it's something that people should be worried about, but it's not necessarily something that is like, oh, this is 100% correct. It might not be. And that's me being very fair. I'm a big anti-theist, so it's not, you know, like I'm fairly sensitive to those concerns. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I think those are legitimate concerns. I also think people turn a blind spot to wherever they want to turn a blind spot to. You know, if someone is religious, in virtually all cases, if it comes down to philosophical priority, religion almost always going to take precedence over law. Law is made by men and religion, you know, God is not made by men. God's, God's law takes precedence, right? Um, well, an originalist would actually think that their hands are tied. I mean, if the law is against God's word, they're still there to judge it that way. No, I disagree. I disagree. Uh, even originalists, you know, originalism is that philosophy, that legal philosophy would still take second priority to making whichever decision is most closely adhering to God's law, right? So if you look at, if, like, look at uh, the other justices, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is Jewish, Elena Kagan is Jewish, Sonia Sotomayor, uh, Roman Catholic, right? So if you, if you look at all three of those religions, you know, maybe in practice, like those three those three justices don't take don't put their religion over over their legal responsibilities but you wouldn't be able to tell that just by looking at their religions right you wouldn't be able to tell you would have to look at their decisions and you would have to look at the justifications behind them and if you do that with ms barrett there's really no explicit reason that you can look at her and disqualify her because of her religion or her right uh, her adherence to her religion. There's nothing that really sticks out about her so far, other than maybe some some comments that were made, you know, not within the legal sphere. And she belongs to um, an organization that's pretty have all the babies. Cra yeah, pretty crappy in how they their philosophy is run. Basically, um, I think only men can like hold positions high up there. I think this brings up a good point uh, that liberals tend to make, or liberals and leftists tend to make when 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 doing some analysis on her, on her is that she is the anti Ginsburg. Oh God, that's, that's extreme. It might be, it might be extreme, but. Cause also I was going to bring something up, holding her to that. Is that not similar to holding Obama to Reverend Wright? You know, Reverend Wright had some weird things to say. I don't, I don't think it's fair to hold them necessarily to that. Let me, let me, let me clarify with that one. They're not talking about it because of her religion or her, uh, her adherence to the, the group that she belongs to they're talking about they say that due to her individual philosophy and thing, statements that she has made i mean i just read a long paper written by her and it's actually really well done it's, it's nuanced it's very nuanced I, I know the paper that you're talking about 
Yeah, she says a lot of things that I didn't expect to come from her. I was actually really surprised when I read it. Dylan, please go ahead. So all of the points that we're making right now are valid points, but none of them are good reasons for not nominating Ms. Barrett to the Supreme Court. You, you mean confirming? Confirming, right, correct. Uh, right, none of, none of those are valid reasons. Uh, you know, if we're talking about the year 1993 and, we're, and we have this belief that it really takes something exceptional uh, that would prevent you from confirming a Supreme Court nominee if you're a senator, she would pass almost unanimously. So my question is, right now, today, in 2020, those, uh, that's not the case because the vote is going to be split along political lines. And my question is, is it wrong to deny a nominee for political reasons? And I would say, I would say no. No. It- yeah, I agree. If the Democrats want to deny her for any reason, that's, it's just advising consent. They could not like her shoes. I mean, it's a really dumb reason. We could talk about <laughs> which reasons we like more than others, but as a senator, that's really, it's up to them. It's just their call. So, yeah. And th- this is, it's, it's a really kind of Machiavellian philosophy right and the the general public isn't really accepting of that you know you can't, if you're if you're either a republican or a democrat you can't say well we w- don't want to accept her you have to say that she's unqualified you can't just say she's qualified but we don't like her you can't say that because that's not going to that's not going to work you're not going to get the support you need in order to to further your position right so we're in this position where we have this this pageantry going on where democrats are coming up with all of these reasons and like pulling out all of these really kind of obscure things uh to say that she's not qualified even though she definitely is qualified yeah it's i mean i don't know enough about her yet to really say for sure but everything i've seen so far has been surprising to the in her favor i mean i was probably pretty much leaning toward her anyway i'm not gonna hide that but i was honestly surprised I was more afraid of religious shit, to tell you the truth. Like, I, I expected some sort of, like, wacko from everything I heard. I think it's fair to say, though, in this, in the regards to the religion and, and stuff like that, is that she does take, uh, I wouldn't say extreme positions, but very typical positions uh, when it comes to religion and the court uh, legal philosophies. Also, one of the things we didn't mention, but we kind of danced, not danced around, but like talked around a bit of it was the difference between an interventionalist God and a passive God. And if somebody is believes in an interventionalist God, they're more likely to put their uh, more ideological leanings above the, the law of the land or what should be a secular society. And those that don't believe in an interventionalist God are likely to, uh, as the Bible quote is, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. I mean, that makes sense. I, I mean, that sort of makes sense. I also believe that I don't think there's really a difference between the two. I think that a passive God is basically a God who hasn't said anything on a given subject. But if that person does believe that the God has said something on that subject, whether the God's interventionalist or not, that's going to take priority. Yeah, but people make up God in every, any way they want. If they have the idea that like, you know, they're saving everyone else's lives or at least their own lives, they're more willing. Like if some guy's like, I'm going to murder your family if you give me a million dollars. Or if another one's like, you know, there's a nice story about giving someone a million dollars and his family didn't get whisked away by the winds. <laughs> what I would love to see is in, in, I don't know, being optimistic 20 years is I would love to see kind of the general public become accepting of legal realism uh, and accepting the political factors that go into making legal decisions and that originalism is a political choice. It's not just, mm-hmm. you know, this this kind of deep philosophical thing that can't be overcome. It's a legal choice. I mean, it's a political choice. It's yeah. a choice among human beings. Amy Coney Barrett's paper touches on that. It's 
It's a great point. So I would love to see people become, one, become accepting of that, become accepting of the fact that politics can take precedence over established law, and two, get beyond that, <laughs> which is the step that I think is, is going to take longer. Get beyond that and kind of, you know, understand that political disagreement is the only isn't the only part of legal realism, right? It's not just about power. It's about coming to understanding and coming to a balance that benefits uh, both parties, that benefits uh, everyone, you know, instead of just one party over another. Where our system is an adversarial system and people should be more open to that. Like everyone wants to like paint it as this beautiful, like almost piece of Americana, but it shouldn't necessarily be that. And one way to get around that is just being like political realism yeah, just roll with it. I forget where I was going to go with that. I'm trying to find that link. Um, I think one of the things that Dylan was touching upon and Mateo was touching upon is that our system being adversarial is very similar to a dialectic uh, analysis to what is and is not good uh, taken through the law. And that is something that we should all remember is that a lot of what we believe to be legal legal positions are more of along the lines of argument and coming to a under, shared understanding of what is and is not quote-unquote good so i think that's something that should be uh mentioned and, and taken into account yeah definitely so one of the things that we didn't talk about and i think that we can uh, probably wrap up this episode with is the uh reasons for, well we talked about the reasons of why she was picked well let's and we talked about kind of her philosophy uh a bit what are the likelihood outcomes of this judicial nomination process and will Democrats have the ability in order to prevent her from getting to the seat? Well, to answer your one question, no, they will not have the ability to prevent her from getting to the seat. They're going to hammer her through, if not for the election, then shortly thereafter. And that'll be entirely upon uh, Mitch McConnell's calculation on what benefits the most, doing it now or doing it later. And then as far as the possible ramifications, I mean, that's kind of hard to calculate. You know, you think about the original, you know, like the Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, which is to say that like if you invent a toaster that if you plug it in one way, it works fine. And if you plug it in another way, there's a nuclear reaction and it blows up the city. It doesn't matter how careful you are. If you engineer something that badly or if there is the capability for that to happen, you could have a team of people guarding it. You could have instructions. You could have no matter what you do with that toaster. At some point, somewhere, there's always that risk that someone's going to plug it in. On a long enough timeline, it's eventually going to happen. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we were talking about originalist kind of construction earlier and the nice thing about that is that it's very stable and it might not be very adaptive, but, you know, America has benefited by one of the most stable governments on earth for, you know, 250 years. So that stability alone is a huge advantage. But, you know, it ultimately re relies on a lot of tradition, a lot of unspoken adherence to social norms. And when you get down to it, that's just the toaster that if you plug it in the right way, it works fine. <laughs> yeah. What has happened is that Trump has realized that, hey, what if we don't do that? What if I want to blow up the city? I'll just plug it in the other way. And, you know, he made it past the guards. He's pushed the instruction manual aside and he's just decided to plug it in the other way. And that's what's happening is that he's basically, you know, going to, he's operating the government in such a way that it will, you know, basically tear itself apart because it was never designed to be operated. Uh, you know, the old quote about your country is only, you know, uh, designed for a, a just and Christian people and it is ill suited for any other, you know, that sort of a thing. We're at that point now where, you know, the social contract was constructed in such a way, you know, is being pushed aside in favor of this kind of will to power sort of a thing. And that's uncharted territory for us. So while they have the strength to make Amy Coney Barrett 
as Supreme Court justice, the Republican strength, as it's currently constituted, is waning. Like this is their kind of high water mark where they're able to, you know, marshal, you know, because of panic, their flight 93 uh, election. They got Trump elected. They may get him elected again. But this is kind of it. You know, we're looking at a future where in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, the Republican Party as it currently exists will not be conservative. It will be, you know, taken over by other forces. And, you know, they're trying to kind of stack the deck as best they can while they still have that power. But it's not a long term play. And it's almost the kind of play where you only do it when you're desperate. And that desperation, I think, is going to lend towards unleashing forces that uh, could work against them. And it could work against them very quickly. Joe Biden might not be the guy to do it. But in four years, eight years, you could get a Democrat in who's like, we're going to stack the deck. We're going to stack the AOC. Yeah, you know, President, I mean, you laugh, but 2032, but but, <laughs> but um, we're not that far off by somebody, you know, like her or maybe a lot more extreme that, you know, is a counter reaction to Trump's extremism and the GOP's extremism. You know, that kind of uh, Hegelian dialectic where you have your thesis and antithesis and all that, like you could create this counter reaction against what you're doing. That's way worse than what you thought you were opposing yep. in the first place. So what that could lead to, you know, it could be pretty historically changing for us. And I, I think that the norms that we've all grown up on, you know, even thinking back to like, you know, Bork and RBG, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's earlier nomination process and all that, we might have a much different future going forward. And, you know, that's kind of what happens when you tinker with these forces that tradition and uh, social norms have kept in place. If you strip all that aside and just say, hey, we're just going to go for the raw power. Uh, okay, you can do that. But you know, God knows where that could lead, because when you get down to it, you know, those norms and social kind of uh, protections that we had in place that, you know, let us operate on an honor system, that really protects everybody. And when it isn't honored, kind of all bets are off. Yeah, they need to bring back the filibuster. This simple majority for a Supreme Court justice thing is just going to cause more problems than it's going to solve. It, it was dumb. Well, we have to be fair to the process as well, why we got there. And part of the reason why it happened is because of a increase of obstructionism to the process that Republicans did after Obama was elected. Yeah. And I mean, that was their prerogative as much as it was the Senate's to get rid of uh, the filibuster. I just, you know, obviously that's going to, that's just not a good thing for them. I mean, our country no. tends to lean conservative anyway. It's in the long yeah, run. Do you think it's going to play out good for the Dems? I wouldn't necessarily say it's, we're, we lean conservative in the long run. I think we're just, we're, we're just hesitant toward change too quickly. But I think we're a right, quote unquote, right of center country, but because we keep moving left a little bit. <laughs> well, when you guys are considered crusty old Republicans by the younger kids, then yeah. <laughs> but that's my point. Like, you know, conservatism conserves, right? And what are you what are you conserving? Well, changes end up making it into into conservative ideology. But I think there's an important distinction and Art kind of brought this up where the conserv the Republican Party won't be as con won't be what we think of as conservatism in 20 years, but it's still a vein of conservatism. A populist right-leaning party is still a conservative party. It's just a different kind of conservative party. It's more focused on things like tradition and that sort of thing rather than, you know, hey, rather than maybe a Burkean kind of conservatism or, a, um, or something like that. It's more nationalistic, maybe focused than rules, norms, that sort of thing. Art actually uh, reminded me of, I forgot to say it when he was talking. So basically, before Trump came in, the Republicans were spending a ton of money trying to reach out to even more liberals and just minorities too. And Trump came and ruined all that. So they know they're going to have to go back there. I mean, this is actually a roadblock on their path. Like this is, was not their plan. 
this kind of just fell in their lap. They they would have been trying. They would have made Romney probably look a lot more uh, further right if they actually. I mean, image wise, probably not. Yeah, substantially on policy wise. Yeah, no, that's that's where they're going. They know it too. I think it's an important distinction to make as well. The forces that Trump unearthed that were always there within the conservative movement that were. Um, actually Trump didn't unearth it. Let's be real. Obama's election unearthed them and gave birth to the tea party and, you know, nativist thinking and stuff like that, that that isn't going to go away. That is American. That is part of our culture. And that is going to stick with us for a very long time. Um, now we can have some sea change happen where, you know, everybody like people follow the leader and stuff like that, but, um, we're, we're not going to see that go away with Trump going away. All we're going to see is the next not necessarily the next Trump because Trump's a pretty unique individual. It's the way he thinks and processes information and acts, but we won't see the populist right go away just because Trump loses. If he loses, we'll just go back to their traditional role of being the embarrassing cousin at the family gatherings. Do you think so? I don't know. We might have a Tom Cotton or a Dent, uh, Dent Crenshaw or somebody else come through with a, I mean, we've we've had those before. They were- I think they're going to be more prominent in the new Republican Party, at least for the next 10 years or so, than they would have been um, because Trump was so successful. Possibly, yeah. Let's go ahead and wrap this up a little bit. Let's talk about, do we think that these changes to the norms and the processes that have been going on with the Supreme Court and with RBG's passing, do we think that this might cause a constitutional crisis? And if it does cause a constitutional crisis, will it lead to a constitutional correction through an amendment or some other process to get us back on track? I mean, I don't think it's a crisis. I think it's pretty straightforward. It's the Senate's call and the president's call. Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually is on tape saying the same thing. I think her words were, the president doesn't stop being the president in his last year. It's no crisis. I think people are just feeling helpless. It all depends on what the Democrats do. Yeah, the, the Democrats are feeling helpless and they're lashing out. But if that causes a constitutional crisis, that's that doesn't say a lot of good for our country because it's it's just straightforward. They have to eat their peas, eat their vegetables. It sucks. I mean, if I was a Democrat, especially with RBG, I'd be... I'm not necessarily talking about RBG here. I'm talking about, you know, the the court being six. Well, no, that that's just icing on the cake, I'm saying. Like, that's just... Right. Six, three conservative... Well, we'll say like 30 years or so. And if Trump wins again or if Justice uh, Thomas decides to retire during the lame duck session, say Trump loses, he decides to retire so that we can get another uh, conservative justice on the court that's just younger. These are the things that I am worried about when I talk about a constitutional crisis. And so if the Democrat, if these things happen or if Democrats push to stack the court, to pack the court again, do we think that that is one going to happen Two, even if it doesn't? Would something like that happen in the future? And what would it take in order to correct the issues that are inherent within the system because it relies too much on norms rather than process? I mean, that's not going to happen. No one's stacking the court. The, the, we're talking about the same party that had a you know, super majority for a very short period of time and went after things that you probably wouldn't expect them to go after when you hear the way they moralize about certain issues. I guess that's fair. Art, do you have an opinion on this? I mean, we're not going to see any kind of constitutional amendment or anything like that. Do you think we should, though? Should bring the filibuster back. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that sort of thing uh, is probably more, you know, reasonable. But you know, ultimately, we're now in this kind of environment where, you know, you have people like you know, Mitch McConnell who you know decided to look past the norms and look at just the kind of the raw ability to say, you know, what we're just not going to vote for a year, and then we'll get our guy in. And you know, once you kind of get to that phase where you have people who are willing to just throw norms out the window and just kind of exercise that will to power, 
that's your system showing you that it's just not engineered well enough to withstand this type mm -hmm. of environment. It needs to be re-engineered and how we would do that. It probably should take a constitutional amendment to restructure how it's done or even uh, something to the effect of, you know, requiring Supreme Court justices to retire every 18 years, not to Andrew right. Yang any names, but people have brought that up. <laughs> 14 years is my my go to for that one. But yeah, right. 14 years, it would be another option. But I think that there's some people in the House or somewhere that uh, brought a bill for 16 or 18 years or some number. I think it's 12. But yeah, that sort of thing would be a much better system. Back when this, you know, Constitution was written, you know, I want to say that the average life expectancy was like 24 or something. So like giving somebody yeah, a life something ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it's or saying your goodbyes when you get a splinter. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, having a lifetime appointment in that type of you know environment, yeah, fine. I mean, I mean, that, that kind of makes sense. And uh, in this environment where we could conceivably in the near future have people living, you know, 100, 150 years. Yeah. A lifetime appointment to anything just drastically does not make sense. Like, and it's the kind of thing where you raise the stakes just because of the the sheer mathematical influence that somebody like that could have over time. It encourages people to take stupid risks because the reward is so great and the penalty is so high. So by losing control of the courts or even not having control of the courts, you know, for yep. any number of years or it being more or less balanced, you know, people who are strictly ideological have lost out quite a bit on the left or the right. It's been more or less, you know, for whatever you want to say, it's been decently balanced for, you know, much of our lifetimes and it's been okay. I mean, you know, certainly people on the far left or far right would disagree, but you know, now we're in a position where the court could, and especially if Trump wins again, depending on how things go, somebody could, you know, choke on a chicken wing or something. And then we're, you know, we get another, you know, hardcore, you know, far right conservative. And then suddenly you're in a situation where you have this unrepresentative body that is kind of thrust upon society for decades. And it's not really going to, it's not going to sit well with the social contract. Like it's just, no. it, it's the, it's a kind of structure that made sense 250 years ago, but you know, the further and further things go on and more things change it. If it's treated like this type of winner take all prize where the intent is just to oppress your enemies, it's going to derail the system. It's going to create pressures that are going to cause counter reactions that you're going to just, you know, throw everything off the tracks. And that's when you overplay your hand. And I think that, you know, Trumpism is just this expression of we don't care. We're going to overplay our hands. And if you don't like this middle finger, you can have both. You know, <laughs> that, that's that's just it. And that's fine if you've got a grip on power. Once that grip slips, especially if people have to marshal a lot of power to make you lose it. Yeah, it's just going to be an overreaction in the other direction. And it's, uh, you know, and then we wind up with 21 Supreme Court justices. And that's all. I think that, you know, the system that's engineered better, like you said, if we bring the filibuster back and it forces people to meet in the middle, you know, that's ultimately a better system. Yeah, I mean, that worked fairly well for a long time. You, yeah. This this simple majority shit is just fucking like nanner, nanner, nanner type shit. And I mean, I'm a, yeah, don't hate the player, hate the game type of person. If those right. are rules, those are rules, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't expect anyone else to do anything differently. I like to consider myself more of a structuralist on this in this regard as well. And to me, it is clearly that the system is broken because it allows for these things to happen. The amount of fuck fuck games that people can play with just changing rules mid midway through without having to go through any sort of process, kind of just being like not any sort of process, but, you know, simple majority or, you know, Mitch McConnell or the Senate majority leader can just be like, eh, we're going to do it this this way now, like. I don't like those things. I love politics. 
But when you have, and we did an episode about social trust, <laughs> just so check that one out as well. But when you have these sort of things that happen, you do see a lot of the, like Art said, the social contract breakdown and social trust breakdown. And that increases tribalism, quote unquote, ideological warfare. So that is my, my uh, stance on that sort of thing. Anybody have a final thought they'd like to put in before I wrap it up? No, I just, I think that's the way it's supposed to be, though. It's supposed to be more of a harsh system that you have to operate within and you could change it i mean obviously there's an amendment process but um as far as changing the rules the only real rule is the senate has the authority to do what they did and they always did right. and whether it's like you can't say oh my god they broke a precedent that they themselves made and not only they themselves made it was like a couple of years ago it's not even like a set precedent like it's not deeply rooted in our no, I understand. So that. it's just, it's more of a problem of the, I mean, I'm going to sound like a broken record now, the filibuster being gone, than it is like, you know, the system needs revamping or there's like a, a great systematic problem. It's, I think as long as you slow the system down, you make it so, you know, actually I think Amy Coney Barrett would have gone through even with the filibuster, but like make it so like just better people or at least a better process to get these people confirmed has to go or has to be held. Yeah, that, that's my point though. Like, I, I don't necessarily, I don't disagree with you on on that regard with the whole precedent thing with uh, Mitch McConnell saying that you know we can't have a, a Supreme Court justice appointed to the court in the middle of an election year. Everybody knew that was just McConnell being McConnell looking for the best angle in order to get his ideological will through. Yeah, he was totally trolling. He's like Biden said so. It's like please, like a, a McConnell. At at the same time. Should McConnell have that authority and ability to do? Oh, yeah. That's my point. I don't necessarily agree that he should have that ability. I don't think any one person should be able to do that thing. I think the system should be structured in such a way where these games. Well, the Senate's there to regulate them if they want to revolt, but they like it. They're on board. Exactly. That's my point, though. Like I when ideological. Yeah, but that's just a bad outcome that you don't like. It's not exactly a, a problem with the system. I mean, I think it exposes a flaw within the system with is my point. We can disagree on, we can reasonably disagree on this. And I'm not going to say that you're wrong. It's just my personal preference. But I will say I am right. <laughs> well, uh, Mateo got in the last word. I'm sorry to say, everybody, that we are out of time. I know that you liked you, what you heard because you stick with us to the end. So please go ahead and smash that like button for the algorithms, share us with your friends, and check us out on all social media and pod where you can find your podcast. And like always, keep your head up through the political storm.